like I said earlier, if we're following the traditional church calendar, this would be the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday uh, celebration. The Sunday before Jesus died on the cross was the day that he rode into the city on a donkey and the crowd shouted, Hosanna. And, but we're going through the Gospel of John. We've been going through the Gospel of John for a year. And so we actually talked, to, and John takes a long time in the final week of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have different material because every gospel writer wrote from their own perspective. And John is described as you know, Jesus' final week called the Passion Week with an introduction. That's how some people describe the Gospel of John. Like it's all introduction and it's his final week. So we actually talked about the triumphal entry months, months ago. And John's, like I said, his perspective is he doesn't have everything. So it's nice to... Uh, and we're preaching through John, but it's nice sometimes to think about the whole picture of what Jesus was going through. Like, for instance, on Friday at noon, the service is about the seven wars from the cross. Well, John only records three wars from the cross. We do think that he said all seven wars, it's just he didn't record all of them. Not that Jesus didn't say those things at all. Because what's interesting to me in John is that the Gospel of John, our theme is believe. But John is also... Like, because you look at the Gospel of John, First John, Second John, Third John, he's like the the, God, the the guy who's all about the love of God. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He talks about loving one another. But in John chapter 19, when he's describing what's taking place and what he described, if you remember, the arrest and the trials, it was actually kind of not very emotional at all. And then he also, John, takes a lot of care to describe the prophecies that are being fulfilled all along the way. So it wasn't like, it's not all lovey-dovey, gushy types of emotional stuff here. John is very systematic in his description. I just think it's interesting when we're looking at the different accounts of Jesus' final days, his final hours, the way John's perspective is here. And as, but as we go through here, I want you to, um, as we go through this passage, notice though, John, uh, notice how John describes the love of Christ how it's on display, and the depth of humility that is happening here that Jesus went through because of, because of Jesus' love for us and, how, and, and the prophecies that we're going to see here. And so I, I summarized this whole section of John 19 with Romans 5.8 that says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God showed his love for us in this way. And there are five parts to today's message, if you want to take notes. The five parts of the message today is, well, first we're going to talk about the place of the skull. And secondly, we're going to talk about the title of the king. And thirdly, the gambling of the soldiers. And fourth, the family of the son. And then the end. So the place of the skull is the very first part. Then the title of the king, the gambling of the soldiers, and the family of the son. And finally, the end. John left off by telling us, and I encourage you, open your Bibles to John chapter 19 in verse 16. John 19, 16 is where Pilate finally makes in John 19, he finally makes the decision from the judgment seat, making it official, guilty. He sends Jesus away to be crucified in verse 16. And if you remember from the trials, Pilate had already given Jesus had already subjected Jesus to a light beating meant to humiliate him and to teach him a lesson. There were three levels of physical punishment that the Romans meted out towards criminals. 
I mentioned last week. The first one was just kind of a, a light beating. So let's say that, um, let's say like, like a, a hoodlum got caught graffitiing or something. Actually, they, that wasn't a law, but let's say it was a law. And he got caught, so you could be publicly flogged. It wasn't like meant to kill anybody, but it meant to send a serious message and, and then a stern warning. So that was the first level. And then the Romans had a second level, which was a lot more severe. And then they had the third level. And Jesus had already gone through the light beating and as part of his trial because Pilate was trying to soften up the crowd and being like, look, this guy is not a king. He's not a leader. He's nobody. He's a nobody. And like, look at him. Everybody's making fun of him. He's all... He's beaten, he's humiliated, and um, that would already happen now. But however, now in verse 16, it says he delivered them over, he delivered him, Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. And so now that the final verdict has been delivered, Jesus is about to go through the, the third level of punishment, the dreaded scourging that took place before a crucifixion in order to prepare a prisoner for death. And what they would do is they would tie him to a pole and then a team of four Roman soldiers made up the crucifixion team or squadron, if you would, and they would take turns whipping the prisoner with a leather strand that had bits of bone and stones at the end that was meant to inflict the most severe punishment as, as possible. In fact, they would do it until the soldiers would get tired. They would take turns until they were exhausted. So it was meant to, the purpose was to torture and weaken the prisoner some historical records have actually indicated that they would accidentally kill them in the, in the process of getting ready to kill them with the beating, the severe beating that Jesus and the others went through on their way to the cross. And then after that took place, when, the, when Jesus was, had gone through all of that, what the Roman soldiers did then, they would leave the city center and they would parade the criminals around the city. They would parade them around the city so that everybody could see how they were beaten up. A lot of times they would either hang their guilty verdict around their neck or the soldiers would carry a sign in front of them that had what they were guilty of, what led them to this, what they did wrong that they deserved this and how they were on their way to the crucifixion location. And it was another form of humiliation. And it was a warning to any person, if you want to challenge Rome, you're going to end up like this as well. Verse 17, it says, he went out. So it wasn't a direct path from where the scourging took place to where the crucifixion took place. And uh, it was a circuitous, a circuitous path that they took on their way to where they were going to go because, like I said, they were making a public spectacle of all of the prisoners. And it says in verse 17, he went out bearing his own cross. So we might think that, when, that Jesus was carrying a lot of pictures that I've seen, maybe you've seen before. You picture like, a cross that's fully formed, that's upright on somebody's shoulder, and they're dragging it with the small end up and the big end down, dragging it behind them. That's the image that we have from society of Jesus or anybody carrying a cross. Well, that's not the way it probably happened. See, it was customary for the Romans when executing prisoners, they would have the vertical beams um, already in place at the location of the crucifixion. And what they did was the prisoner was meant to carry the horizontal beam on their way to the cross. That is the part of the cross that they would carry with them. In a way, it was a way to add insult to injury so that the prisoner would have to carry the thing that would be the instrument of their death. Sometimes the prisoners weren't able to do this because of the extensive scourging that took place just earlier 
on their way before they went to the execution site. And we know from the other Gospels that this is what happened to Jesus, that he was not able, he was so weakened, had lost so much blood, had gone under so much stress and physical torture and pain that he wasn't able to carry the crossbeam on his shoulders the entire way. And he stumbled and he fell, and the Roman soldiers grabbed a passerby. Coming in from the country, it says in another Gospel account, a man named Simon from Cyrene in northern Africa. And they told him that, and they said, you, you, are, you have to carry this cross for this prisoner. And they were the Roman guards, whatever they said went. And it actually says in the book, the book of Mark that this Simon, that his two sons were Rufus and Alexander. Which is interesting. Why mention that detail? Well, I think it adds validity to the fact that this is real. That Rufus and Alexander, some people think that they became leaders in the church. And they were obviously well known to the people that was reading Mark's account because they can say, I was there when I was younger. And it was my father who picked up that beam and carried it for Jesus on the way to the hill. And so they go outside of the city to the place of the skull, it says in Scripture, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha or Golgotha. You know, and I always think, I thought the hill was called Calvary. That's the songs that we all sing on a hill called Calvary, right? But it says here that it was called the place of a skull. And in Aramaic, it was called Golgotha. Well, Golgotha is an English translation of the Greek and the Aramaic word, which means skull. So that's how you would say it. It, was, it means the same thing. Golgotha means skull in Aramaic. And Aramaic was the common language that everybody understood. Well, the word Calvary comes from the Latin word for skull because for most of church history, they used uh, what was called the Latin, it was called Vulgate. It was a Latin translation of the New Testament in, in uh, the New Testament language. They read it in Latin. Well, that's where Calvary comes from. Calvary is the same word. It's skull. It means Golgotha, means skull. So we don't know exactly where this took place. We know a couple things. It was outside of the city on a hill, and that it was in a location where travelers and visitors that were coming into the city, remember what we said, like there were so many people, some people think a half a million or a million visitors to the city, and they would all pass by this location where these prisoners were. They could all see what was taking place. They could all be a witness to the humiliation of these criminals. And again, it was a way to say, well, if, you know, if, if you're, you're here and you're, you're all excited because of the Passover, and you're all like, yeah, we're Israel when you're all pumped up and everybody's all jazzed up. Well, if you think you're going to start something, you're going to pass by and see what happens to people who start something against Rome. So it was a way they did this on purpose. I think they chose this week, the Romans chose this week to, to execute three criminals for this very purpose, to send a message of where the strength actually laid. Well, once they were at the execution site, the prisoner was placed flat on the ground and his arms were either nailed or tied to the crossbeam. And in Jesus' case, they used nails. And we don't know whether it was pierced exactly through his hands or through his wrist. That remains questionable. But then the prisoner was hoisted up and the crossbeam was attached to the vertical beam with nails. And then what they did was they attached a, a small platform at the bottom of the vertical beam where there's a place where Jesus' feet were rested. And then they would nail the feet to the vertical beam as well. So that small, and they're actually, 
historical records have found that sometimes there was a little tiny platform for where their bottom would have been as well. Now, the, the platform for the feet, we, kn- we know that it was likely there as well. The reason why the Romans did that, it was so it wasn't an act of mercy on the Romans' part. It's actually, uh, it was actually put there because in order to breathe, whenever you were hung like that on a cross, you had to pull up with your hands and push with your feet to lift up your body so that you could get air into your lungs. So it looked like an act of mercy, so, you know, putting the thing at their feet, but in a way it was actually meant to extend the torture because a prisoner would need to breathe and they would pull on that in order to take a breath. If, they didn't, if that wasn't there, then the prisoner would die quickly from asphyxiation. So by allowing the prisoner to push himself up, an involuntary action, gasping for breath, it would prolong the agony and the pain and the torture that they were going through. You know, in, in America, we have the Eighth Amendment that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. That's actually the opposite of what the Romans did. <laughs> they took the concept of, pers- of crucifixion, which they didn't, they didn't invent. It actually came from the Persians years ago. But they perfected it to be a slow torturous death that took anywhere from six hours up to four days. The longest recorded crucifixion was two weeks that a person was enduring that. And actually, the English word excruciating, when we talk about excruciating pain, literally means from the cross. That's where we get that word from. In verse 18, we read that there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus in between. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that these men were robbers. It's the same word, actually, however, that's used for a guerrilla fighter and not the animal guerrilla. By guerrilla fighter, I mean these are the people that were known as the zealots. These are the people that were, um, they weren't real military. The Jews didn't have a military, but they had these freedom fighters, if you will. They would have called themselves freedom fighters. The Romans would have called them insurrectionists. And they would have been the people that uh, by any means necessary, would have tried to, I mean, if they could have secretly killed a Roman soldier, they would have, they, and they probably did. They were people that were the ones who thought, we need to uh, get our swords, we need to fight Rome, we, no matter what we can do. And this makes sense to me, because think about it, the Romans weren't going to just crucify somebody for, for robbing a store, right? They weren't going to do that. However, if these three men were people that were killed and they had killed some soldiers in the fight against Rome, you know, then of course Rome would want to make an example of them. And, and they would want all the Jews to see on Passover week, you know, this great celebration, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Rome would want to make an example of these three people. And think about this, why was Jesus on the middle cross? Have you ever thought about that? Well, for one reason, uh, Jesus is crucifixion alongside criminals happened in fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 53.12. But also, remember from a couple weeks ago, who was that cross built for? It was built for Barabbas, wasn't it? That wasn't Jesus' cross that day. That was Barabbas's cross. And Pilate wanted to get Jesus released. And so what did he do? He said he took Jesus after he was beaten and bloodied and beat up and bruised and compared him to Barabbas. Barabbas is the one who had the reputation of being a violent insurrectionist, of being the worst criminal imaginable. And I'm just guessing here, but what if Barabbas 
was the leader of this trio band of criminals, which is why he would have been in the middle, because he would have been their leader. And so Pilate brought Barabbas up with Jesus to the crowd and said, you want Jesus, a teacher from Nazareth, or do you want Barabbas, the worst criminal you can think of? Thinking that the crowd would say, you know, release Jesus, put Barabbas to death. I mean, he's, he's hurting everybody, right? And the crowd yelled, crucify Jesus, release Barabbas. So Jesus was not meant for that cross. It was meant for Barabbas. That's why it was built. But Barabbas was set free, and now Jesus is the one on the cross. So at the place of the skull, there was a title, a placard, that there was always one for all the criminals. Like I said, you were always there. Like It was going to be put above you. Like you, if you had killed somebody, it would say murderer, and it was on the cross that everybody would see, like, you deserve this. This is why you are being put to death. And it was common for the convicted person to wear that as partially as a sign of punishment. So Pilate decides that he, you know, he's getting kind of sick of these Jewish religious leaders. So instead of writing insurrectionist or, you know, instead of writing something like that on the cross, he wrote Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And he wrote it in three languages. Three languages because Aramaic was the language that was in common use in Judea. Latin was the official language of Rome and the Roman army. And then Greek was the international language because if you remember uh, the conquest of Alexander the Great spread the Greek language everywhere. And actually Greek, classical Greek, had actually dissolved to be a street language Greek called Koinonia. And that was the language that everybody kind of, that was the slang that everybody spoke on the street. So Pilate was covering every base. If you were a scholar, if you were a Roman soldier that only spoke and understood Latin, you could have read that. If you were a poor peasant, you could have read that. If you were just an average Joe who didn't even know anything about what was going on, you could have read that. He put it in three languages and nailed it to the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He did this so that everybody walking in, they could see like this is, you know, they were supposed to say, don't mess with Rome. And I can think of three reasons why Pilate wrote what he wrote. First of all, this was, if you remember, this was technically what, what brought about Jesus' death. Remember, the Jewish leader said blasphemy. Well, Pilate's not going to write blasphemy on the cross, right? He's not. Why does Rome care about blasphemy of the Jewish people? He doesn't care. So they said, well, you've got to be a friend of Caesar's. He's making himself out to be a king. So in a way, this was the actual official plea. This was the actual official condemnation. So Pilate was correct. Also, Pilate is getting kind of tired of these bothersome Jewish leaders, so in a way, it was meant to stick it to them. So look in the very next verse. They say, you need to write, he says he's the king of the Jews. He's not our king. And Pilate's like, ah, get out of here. I wrote what I wrote. Stop talking to me. I'm done with you all. Mic drop. And that's kind of what he said to them. I wrote what I wrote. What I have written, what I have written. So he is done. That is, And the finality with that language is like he is done with them. So they say take it down. He says no. But the third reason why I believe that God allowed Pilate to write that is because it really was the truth. It really is the truth. The Lord Jesus is indeed the King of the Jews. And the cross is the means of his exaltation and the very manner of his glorification. So Pilate announces it in three languages. So everyone, the whole world can know that Jesus Christ is King. 
So while Jesus is suffering, while he's suffering there at his feet, the soldiers were gambling. He's in the process of dying for others, and they're in the process of living for themselves. And this part is also humiliating as well. First of all, the soldiers divide Jesus' clothes among themselves. Like I said, uh, there was probably four of them that did the crucifixions that day. If you ever watch movies or stuff, I haven't seen one in many, many years, but it always seems like there's a whole bunch of Roman army, like they sent out like 100 people. There's probably only four that did actually. And every criminal that was executed had a head covering, like a turban or something like that. We call it a turban. They had a head covering. They had a belt, and they had their shoes, and then they had their outer garment. And so what, hey, there's four pieces of clothing. There's four of us. We're taking, this guy doesn't need it anymore. We're taking all this stuff. But also what the Romans did was, I would say, is as humiliating as anything else, is that Roman crucifixions, they removed all of their clothing as well, all of their clothing. In fact, sometimes in battle when Rome was victorious, they would strip all the officers and parade them around like that so that everybody could see and, and they could be humiliated. And so they divided the clothing among themselves, it says, but they had the tunic left. The tunic was a, a long garment worn under the cloak next to the skin was the tunic. And Jesus' tunic was very special because it says it was woven without a, a seam. It wasn't made up of different parts. And so they recognized there was a lot of value in this article of clothing. And they didn't want to lessen the value by ripping it into four pieces. So they decided to cast lots for it. They decided to roll dice or do some sort of gambling for it. And we see this as a fulfillment of prophecy in, in Psalm, from Psalms 22.18, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Which... Again, you might think like that some people said, well, you know, Jesus, he orchestrated these things so in order to fulfill prophecy. But, you know, the Roman soldiers didn't get together and say, hey, we should gamble for this guy's clothing so we could fulfill Jewish scriptures, you know. You know, we got to make it all fulfilled down to the last detail. No, this is John's editorial comment here pointing out that the soldiers were doing something of self-interest but an actual fulfilled prophecy from Psalms 22. Isn't that amazing? All of these details from the Old Testament concerning the, the prophecies of the Messiah, and they all are fulfilled in Jesus. You know, because John wants us to see that this is not an accident of history, but Jesus' death came about through the invisible hand of a sovereign God. Now, John, he talks about some of the people that were there that day. Uh, verse 25. And we can see here in Jesus' heart for others in the midst of his suffering. Verse 25, it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, in the original language, they didn't have punctuation. So, if you're looking at this sentence, you know what they say? Commas save lives. You ever heard of that? Like, let's eat, Grandma. You know, how you put the comment is it's a joke, right? But um, punctuation is really important. But whenever we're doing the English, we don't know exactly was there three women or were there four women. And I keep reading it different ways. And I, I think it was four women. And that's how I'm going to look at it, like it's four women. It really is not that important. 
But the, the four women there, Mary Magdalene, who hasn't appeared so far, but we know she's in Jesus' life a lot, right? And later on she'll be involved a little bit. But Mary Magdalene was, was um, involved in Jesus' ministry. And then you have Mary, the wife of Clopas. And then you have uh, Salome, which is Mary's sister and Jesus' aunt who is there. And of course, we have Jesus' mother, Mary. Mary was a very popular name back then, right? So then you have Jesus' mother, Mary, that was there as well. So there, And we have John, who's the one writing this, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is standing there as well. Now there's probably other people that were there, but he points out those four people that are there. And Mary, and it just breaks your heart, doesn't it? You know, if you're a parent, knowing that you're standing there watching what's about to take place, we're reminded of when Jesus was just a baby and Mary and Joseph took took Jesus to the temple and Simeon was there in the temple and he prophesied to Mary, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. And so Mary is there in agony as well because she's watching her son go through this agony. And even in his suffering, Jesus was concerned about the suffering of others. We imagine now that probably Jesus' father, Joseph, is not in the picture if you've noticed, we haven't heard about him for a long time. A lot of people guess that he might have passed away. And so Mary is there, but she's all alone. And at this point, too, Jesus' siblings, because he had other brothers and sisters, were not there. I, I don't believe they believed until after the resurrection. So they could have been up north in, in Galilee. You know, They could have been, or, or in Nazareth, or Bethlehem, wherever they were living. They could have been spread out, right? Well, there at the cross was not a bunch of family except for Mary and her sister who was comforting her, who was there with her, witnessing what was taking place. And Jesus is concerned because his siblings aren't there. And if a woman loses everybody else and she's middle-aged there, it's going to be difficult for her to survive going forward. And so in verse 26, we read that when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. When Jesus um, addresses his mother there, again, if you remember from uh, John chapter 3, that when he turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, he addressed his mother as, Woman, why are you bothering me? And then here, it almost sounds like he's not very kind, right? He calls his mother woman, right? That doesn't seem kind. Well, it actually really is. He's actually using a term of endearment that's hard to translate there. Jesus used that same term with that woman caught in adultery. And he's not being harsh as well. He's actually speaking in, in tenderness to her in a time of her pain and suffering and humiliation as well. So he wanted to make sure that she is loved and she is taken care of after he is gone. And John, who always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, he took Mary into his home. In, in effect, he became her new son, and she became his mother in, in that family relationship. And so now after this, Jesus, verse 28, knowing that all was now finished, he said, again, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. It says in verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So, they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
earlier in the accounts, one of the things, by the way, that they would do to actually further the process is they would give you a drink to help dull the pain. Because again, if you were to pass out from pain, you would die because you would suffocate. And so they would give you something so that you wouldn't experience as much pain in order in a short term so you would experience more pain in the long term. And Jesus had been offered that drink earlier and he actually had refused that drink. He refused the drink that would dull his pain. So this is a different drink. This says it is sour wine of wine vinegar. And he actually took it in order to be able to drink because his throat was so dry he couldn't even say anything. All I could say was, I thirst. And so in verse 30 it says that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. There's actually one word in the Greek Aramaic that he spoke, and that one word was tetelestai. Tetelestai. It, it comes from the verb teleo, which means carrying out a task. And in religious context, it bears the overtone of fulfilling one's religious obligations. So we can kind of try to understand by saying, it is finished. It is complete. The work is done. That word is also a word that was adopted in business dealings as well. Tetelestai. If you owed a bill, let's say you got a bill in the mail and you had to pay this bill from your creditor. And so you take the bill and you take the money and you go to the business that you owe the money to. You say, I owe this amount and here's the money for it and you hand it over. That business would stamp that bill paid in full. It would stamp that bill with that word to Telestine. That means your debt is paid for completely. The debt is gone. Our debt is paid in full. Jesus' work is done. You know, I want to speak for a moment about those things that all of that took place. You know, and the Bible, uh, we talk about the death of Christ in so many ways and the, the, all, everything that was accomplished at the death of Christ. You know, we use the word sometimes expiation. Expiation, in the Old Testament, when the priest would offer sacrifice, they would bring two goats forward, and one goat, the priest would lay his hand on the goat's head and transfer the sins of the people onto the head of the goat, and then they would let the goat escape. It became a scapegoat, which we use the word scapegoat. The scapegoat would escape, and it would demonstrate that our sins are now being carried away from us. Our sins are being carried away. That's why the, uh, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's like God took our sins and he, he took all of our sins and he threw them in the ocean and put up a no fishing sign. That's expiation that took place at the cross. But there's also a propitiation. Another word that we don't use every day in our language is propitiation. Expiation talks about, is a, is a word that explains the removing of our sins. Propitiation refers to the removal of God's wrath. So by dying in our place for our sins, Christ Remove the wrath of God that we justly deserved. He actually absorbed the wrath that was meant for us on himself. So propitiation, though, isn't just a sacrifice that removes wrath, but it's a sacrifice that removes wrath and turns it into favor. So there are several passages that speak of Christ's death as the propitiation for our sin. Romans 3.25 and 26 says that God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. So this is the love that God shows for us and that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And thirdly, God's justice was accomplished on the cross. So the wrath of God came full force down on Jesus. As, it, as we read in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You see, the wages of sin is death. And when Jesus became sin, he was able to pay the full penalty for our guilty sin. God doesn't just ignore sin. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug and act like it didn't happen. That wouldn't be just. And he doesn't downplay sin either. God is righteous and God is holy. Because sin is serious and it has serious consequences. So he sent his son to deal with it in a serious way by taking the penalty for our sins so that he is the just, he is just and the justifier of the inexcusable. Jesus drank the cup of wrath down to the very last drop, turned it over and said, it is finished. Fourthly, we have reconciliation. So expiation is the removal of our sins. Propitiation is the removal of the wrath of God that rests on, the, on sinners. And reconciliation refers to the removal of our alienation with God. It talks about our adoption into His family. You see, because of our sins, we are alienated. We are separated from God. And Christ's death removes this reconciliation or removes this alienation and allows us to be reconciled. Romans 5, 10, and 11 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of the Son, much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by this life, by His life. So we are now reconciled. We are able now to have... So it's not just our sins are forgiven, as I can say, just, right? It's now we have the righteousness of God on us. We have the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in His righteousness. And we are now reconciled to Him. So now we are adopted into His family with the full benefits of a true son and daughter of the King. And fifthly, we are redeemed. So we were bought with a price. We were ransomed. The Bible uses this term of, of ransom. And the question, uh, if you think about it, like ransom from who? Ransom for what? Like some people wrongly say that we belong to Satan until Jesus' death. We don't belong to Satan at all. But Christ's death accomplished redemption because there was a price that was paid through Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross for us. And there are three things that we had to be released from. The curse of the law, the guilt of sin, and the power of sin. Christ redeemed us from, uh, for, from each of these. So he redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. He became our curse. He was accursed. He was cut off from the land of the living. He took on us that. And then third, uh, secondly, Christ redeemed us from the guilt of sin. So we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So our guilt is now removed. We, are, we have no guilt of our sin. And Christ has redeemed us from the power of sin knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of living inherited from your fathers, but you were, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so now we are free 
to live righteousness. We are no longer a slave to sin. We are a slave of Christ. And so sin no longer has its hold on us. You were bought with a price, Scripture says, therefore glorify God in your bodies. And number six, Jesus defeated the powers of darkness. And not only that, now we get to be paraded with him in his victory. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross, it says in Colossians. And so your sin was nailed to the cross. And now, so that thing, all of this that's taking place, how they tried to embarrass Jesus and humiliate him and uh, bring him to open ridicule and open shame. They thought they were doing that to him. In reality, Jesus was doing that to sin. It says he disarmed, in Colossians 3, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, Satan's only weapon that he can use is and that he can use to ultimately hurt people is unforgiven sin. And Christ took this weapon away from him. And so like the saying goes, when Satan reminds you of your past, you can remind him of the future. Like you can say, I know, you know, I was all those things, but I am totally forgiven now. And so your accusations have no hold on me, Satan. Not any longer because I know that they are forgiven. Having forgive us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Colossians, we've been studying on a Wednesday night, the Bible study, that's what it says in Colossians 2.13, that Jesus nailed them to the cross. That record of debt is now forgiven. It is finished. And all of this is possible because he became our substitute. And the reality of the substitution is the heart of the atonement. Christ accomplished all of this for us by dying in our place for our sins, that he died for us instead of us. We deserve to die, but he took that upon ourselves, upon himself. And that's what it means in Romans 5a when it says that Christ died for us. He gave himself for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so the reality of the substitution is that Jesus did that for us. And he accomplished that, that we, that we deserved punishment for our sins, but now we have the forgiveness. Praise be to God. You know, and think about that. Think about the cross there. That Jesus was crucified between two criminals. He was crucified between criminals as a criminal for us criminals. And so we look to him for our salvation. And I want to echo, you might have seen going around on Facebook or whatever, the little video of Alistair Beggs. It goes around every year this time where he was talking about the man on the, on the cross who, who actually believed in Jesus. Between these two criminals that probably knew each other, one begins to haul cur- hurl curses at Jesus. And the other one says, he did nothing wrong. And then says to Jesus, remember me when you get to paradise. And Alistair Begg, the pastor, says, I can't wait to get to heaven and find that guy and say, like, what did you tell them when you got to heaven? Like, you didn't do anything in your life, right? You did nothing but commit murder and crimes. Like, you didn't go to a Bible study. You never took a class. You never went to sermon. You never gave any money. You did nothing. 
what did you tell them when you came there? You know, what did you tell them when you got to heaven? And he said, I'm going to tell them the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's all we have to hold on to. It's not what we do, you know. It's not that we're here, that we gave, that we did. It's not that we did anything for him. It's that he did all of that for us. And I want to ask you today, when you die and stand before God, what are you going to tell him? Are you going to tell him I was a good person? Are you going to tell him I did my best? You know, I tried to raise my kids right. I tried to treat people good. Is that what you're going to say? Because none of that holds water, my friend. All you can say is, you know what? The man on the middle cross said I could be here. Our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's remember what he did for us this week. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen.